Date. 4th of the 3rd, 1968. To the person in charge of? St. Brandon's Hospital. Name of person? X. The voices now in your head are those of actors. Address of person? St. Mary's Magdalene's, Donnybrook 4. They are reading the contents of old committal forms. Committal forms recovered from the attic of a mental hospital in 2010. Age? 17 and a half. Sex? Female. State whether single, married or widowed. Single. The hospital in question is St. Brendan's Hospital Grange Gorman. Previously Grange Gorman Mental Hospital. Previously the Richmond District Lunatic Asylum. And before that again, the Richmond Asylum. Religion. Or say. Occupation. Laundress. Connection with the said person. Sister in charge of home. Delete whichever do not apply. Husband, wife, relative. This application is not being made by any person specified above because... Not available. The hospital at Grange Gorman is known by many names. The ones I have known are the Grange, Brendan's, the Mental, the Puzzle Factory. The Grange Gorman campus is a huge rambling old place that feels almost self-contained. Tucked away in its own territory up on the north side of the Liffey, between Dublin's Smithfield Market and the North Circular Road. In the 1950s and 1960s, Ireland had the highest per capita population of residents of mental health institutions in the world. There were as many as 2,000 patients and 2,000 staff working behind the high stone walls. Connection with the said person is... Sister in charge of home. And the circumstances in which I make this application are... X has become impossible to manage in this institution. Upsets others, breaks breaks things. things. In February 2013, St Brendan's Mental Hospital closed after 199 years. In 2015, Grange Gorman is no longer a mental hospital, it's a university. Dublin Institute of Technology has moved in and much of the old hospital has been demolished. But recovered from the attics of the old hospital were piles and piles of forgotten possessions. Going to go into my studio now. I blacked it out completely, so it's like going into a cave. The possessions of the people who lived there and who died there. Cigarette cases, toothbrushes, lipsticks, powder compacts, shaving brushes, pencils, medals, so many medals, rosary beads over here, piles and piles, I would say hundreds of, of house keys and door keys. Artist Alan Cunahan first heard about the personal effects in 2012. RT broadcast a documentary by Mary Raftery, Behind the Walls, and um, I was really moved by that. They made that documentary in 2010, and during the course of the documentary, some retired staff rescued from the attics of an old building in what used to be the old penitentiary in Grange Gorman, the entire archives of the hospital. And... They found boxes and boxes and boxes of personal belongings of dead or discharged patients. I was fascinated and I I just knew some of the stuff has to be saved because these were things that belonged to people. Why were they kept? Why were they not reclaimed by family? What was the story? Admitted 14th of February 1948. Handbag containing 14 spoons, two prayer books... Two rosary beads, purse, cash, seven pence, halfpenny. There are some handbags. They're really, really tatty and torn. 
I'm not sure what's in these, but, but th this is untouched. There would have been rosy beads in these ration books, maybe a photograph. But you can smell the mould on them. Everything is, yeah, that there's a photograph of a, a very old woman and a baby. That must be taken in the early 20th century. When a patient was taken in, their personal belongings were taken off them. And the handbag then was labelled, and it was labelled uh, with its contents, with the name of the patient, the date of admission, in this case it's the 28th of April 1933, the registration number, the contents, cash, four shillings, three pence and a, and a farthing. How did the personal belongings of patients come to lie scattered about his damp and filthy attic floor? Why on earth were the personal belongings of dead people kept for so long and in such a deplorable state, covered in pigeon shit and rat droppings? Did nobody want them? Belongings or person? Admitted, 28th of April 1930. Handbag containing two keys, insurance cards, references, cash four shillings and threepence farthing. Died 8th of March 1951. My, my mother used to... Um, give anaesthesia when people were receiving electrical muscle therapy in both Portran and Grange Gorman in Dublin. And so I would, um, I, I'd sit in the car and we'd be told not to get out. And then, but, but of course, being children, you do. And so you, you walk around the gardens with a kind of a sense of awe and terror at the same time because you knew that you were within the walls of what was sometimes seen, or certainly in conversation, described as another world. And uh, we'd run back to the car frightened and we'd, you know, we'd creep around bushes and uh, we'd meet patients. You'd meet people who would kind of seem to be drifting aimlessly around the garden. I remember watching one man with a jug of milk walking out of a building, walking up along the trees, the milk trailing out of the jug as he walked and then getting to the top of the road, about to cross it, looking down at the jug, looking back along the, the trail of spilt milk, walking back to the kitchen coming out ten minutes later with the jug, walking up, trailing milk again. In the spring of 2014, Alan's exhibition, Personal Effects, A History of Possession, is about to open. As an artist, when I look at something, sometimes it just goes click in your head and you say, this is it, this is what this needs. And I just could immediately see a dark room, handbags hanging upside down, lit from inside and their contents falling out onto the floor. The exhibition is opening in what was known as the long stores of Grange Gorman Hospital. The paint is peeling. It's almost uncomfortably cold. The diggers can be heard outside. There's not a huge volume of people coming, but the people who come, they seem profoundly moved, and that's commonly written in the, in the visitor's book. Eerie, disturbing, very worthwhile. Some people sit inside in the room. They can be half an hour in there. Some people have come back three times, so it's, it's working. I wish the numbers were up. Sometimes I sit here and I, I feel like a patient hoping for a visitor. So some days have been very, very slow. It's not the most welcoming of environment. You know, it's, uh, it, does, it does get in and near the mould growing on the walls and you kind of, I pace the corridors, you know. But anyway, it's um, only a few days to go. Thank you all very much for coming. The exhibition has also attracted people who had connections to Grange Gorman. They worked there, 
They lived there. Their relations may have been confined there and may never have been spoken about by their families. Spread the word, will you? Yeah, absolutely. Most of the possessions Alan has worked with were in handbags, but men's belongings went into little canvas bags with a label attached. One of them tells its own story. It's from 1955. A man in his 30s according to his identity card, who worked for Borden Mona in County Offaly and then for a time worked in England for the Royal Navy Armament Depot. And he left there in 1951. And then there are a lot of letters to him, obviously from his girlfriend. St. Patrick's Home, Navan Road, Drumcondra, October 1955. My dear M, I hope this finds you well. I got your letter all right. You may have some luck this week as regards a job. Don't worry too much. I'll say some prayers. You'll have some luck this week. M must have brought these letters with him when he arrived at the hospital. This one was sent a month before he was admitted in November 1955. I will close now with hopes of having a few lines to let me know how you are. Don't worry too much about things. All will turn out all right in the end, as long as there is love on both sides. All my love, M, forever. Love, A. She has other letters there that continually express her love. Also saved from the hospital's attic were its institutional archives, the records of the tens of thousands of lives, fortunate or unfortunate enough, to have spent some or most of their lives there. Many were ill, some were not. Their records have been moved to the National Archives, where archivist Brian Donnelly has been meticulously recording everything. Brian was involved in the discovery of the handbags in the attic of the hospital in Grange Gorman in May 2010. Hello, Brian. How are you? Do you want to come, come down? I, well, I have the stuff down the warehouse, and maybe a bit cold, but, but, but we, can, we can see. Uh, we, 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 yeah, uh, so we, we'll, be, we'll be in the warehouse. Oh, There'll be no cold in my studio. So, Brian, this is the history of the country. Oh, oh yes, indeed. In boxes. <laughs> Perhaps we, we, we'll have a look at the first uh, register of admissions, which uh, starts in, in 1814. There, there is um, a section in uh, the register, probable cause of illness, we'll be a few pages. Here, a 28-year-old lady, bad care after lying in, so she must have had a child. The care after her um, pregnancy wasn't very good. Uh, we have another person here, epilepsy. A 41-year-old man, disappointment in trade. A thirty-year-old a, a, um, uh, woman, uh, yes, Ill, Ill treatment from her husband. Some patients are committed for too much reading. Too, uh, yes, yes, too, too much reading. Yes, or a fright, drunkenness, loss of property, derangement of affairs, uh, cold, dissipation, a fever. Incredible but, but, variety. And then of, they list them as species of disease. Uh, melancholy, yes. melancholy, mania seem to be the most. Yes, that seems to, seems to seem to be the main categories, indeed. Which we so, might today call depression. Yes, which we might today call, call depression, indeed, yes. One of the conditions given by the HSE for Alan to work with the material was that the right to privacy doesn't die with the patient. And so I removed their names from all the labels, I removed their names from committal forms, I removed features from their photographs, whether they were photographs of themselves or their own loved ones. That's a strange thing to do. They only exist in the archives as, as names in a ledger, and I had hoped to be able to share them as full individuals and to restore them dignity. And I feel in some sense that 
in not being able to name them, I'm perpetuating that same strange regulation that denied them their most personal privacies when they were alive. Yet ho I hope that in the work, they've come across as full human beings, like, just like you and I. Most of the material that Alan is working with is from the 1950s and 60s. By now, many of the owners of that material have passed away. Through the people he met at the exhibition, Alan met Sarah, not her real name, who had her own more recent experience of St Brendan's and of other mental hospitals. I'm a seamstress by trade. I do the silver service work as well, but I love to sew. When she was 26, she was admitted for postnatal depression. I was married with three children. I just got very crying, moody. You know, these blues wouldn't go out. I had it for 15 years and all. I was on a lot of medication. I was coping for three years at home, but I was on an awful lot of tablets a day, about 20-something, to make me sleep. But they were, I was functioning. I got very into myself. I was always a quieter one in the family, you know, but I just wouldn't speak to anyone. I didn't want to see nobody. Then I got agoraphobia, and I wouldn't cross the door for six months. Now, I fed the children, washed and dressed them, but I wouldn't go out the door. I felt everyone was talking about me, and... Just this black hole. I can't describe it, you know, it's just horrible. I remember one Friday I was out in the back garden, it was lashing rain. And just said I went to hospital. My husband told me to come in and I said, there's all germs in that house, I'm not going in. So the doctor was rang and I was carted off then and I didn't know where I was going. Now, I had it all over me again, Alan, I wouldn't go. But I went through a lot, I did go through a lot because I was too quiet and I wouldn't speak up and I wouldn't think the way I speak now, you know. The patient's private property, that was in a place called the Annex, which was the old Richmond penitentiary, a fairly sinister-looking building, you know. I find it interesting that the things that mattered most to people were kept away from them. Oh, yes. Like yeah. the house key, you know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, I mean, there, oh, were, yes. there were so many rosary beads, as yeah, you know. Yes. I remember seeing these huge big piles of handbags and small possessions, crucifixes and um, masses of rosary beads. It's very moving, you know, to see, like a time capsule, you know, all, all these things still there, you know. Shortly after learning of their existence, Alan was granted access to view the possessions by Dick Bennett, Grange Gorman's director of nursing for many years. Dick was one of the volunteers who salvaged the archives and the personal belongings from the attic. People brought their belongings with them and people did bring their belongings everywhere with them then because they didn't have many belongings. And very often the handbag was the only personal possessions people might have had and there was comfort in looking at those things and fingering the, the prayer books or other items that they might have there in the handbag. So it was the record from home, it was the memory from home. Everything's taken off you when you go in, no matter what you've had to go, everything's taken. I had a handbag with nothing in it, only a free pass. I never had a shilling in my purse because I never allowed to carry money. I never had money. Before Dick died unexpectedly in 2014, Alan asked him why people's personal possessions were taken from them on admission to the hospital. Why were they then kept hidden away from them for safekeeping? Certainly they would be taken on admission and noted in all the details. Now, when they'd be in much better form to appreciate the whole thing, as far as I'm aware, they would have been given back. Minus some... A bit like the security at the airport, minus some items now like scissors and things that could be not necessarily used themselves but could be taken by another patient and uh, used. 
and stab someone. Or And the other thing is that there would very often be a replacement handbag brought in by family and they'd build up another store of items, uh, slightly different ones. What could have happened if someone had acquired another handbag and they were discharged, the one in the stores might never see the light of day again. It might be part of what what we discovered much later. But the reality is that there should be, uh, on discharge, there should be a check-in to see what positions you had and it should be returned to you when you were on the way out. But like every other situation, that may not always have happened. Even if you go to any airport, you'll see an awful lot of debris left. Airports and debris... Flights of fancy and broken people. Dick was of the opinion that patients, once they had settled into their new environment, eventually might have had their belongings returned to them. Perhaps this was so. But the fact that so many of the bags and belongings were then returned to the attics suggests their families had no interest in their reclamation. Not the belongings, anyway. Perhaps not even the person. Hello. Con, how are you? Come on in. Thank you. Good Go downstairs. Con Buckley is a former psychiatric nurse at St. Brendan's who came to Alan's exhibition. My experience of it, and I have to be honest about it, you know, I mean, it was pretty bleak. Once you went in, even working in there for me, you realised that you were in another world. I found it difficult, particularly when I first got uh, assigned to a pretty grim long stay, Victorian building. I'm certainly not saying the people were badly treated, they weren't but the atmosphere was very, very grim. It was dark. It's, it didn't smell good. I remember the first day I went in I was practically in tears myself. The kind of ethos that's around now that you you know, you, you had discussions about things. You didn't really have discussions about things. You, you obeyed orders. That was the basis on which the uh, institution ran. I remember how strange it was when somebody came up to me and said, Nurse, can I have a cigarette? And I was thinking I was 18 years of age and saying, why is there a grown man asking me permission to do something? That's Dr Damien Brennan, author and academic, now teaching in Trinity School of Nursing. But he was also a psychiatric nurse in St Brendan's in the 1980s. I suppose at that stage I didn't know the rules, I didn't know the dynamic, but very quickly you get to know the rules. It was the last days of those institutions, but you comply very quickly. I never knew what postnatal depression was, you know. It wasn't talked about. It's very common now, you see, Alan, you know, which is good. It was like the Stone Age, I know it was the 70s, but they wouldn't do it that way. They wouldn't keep you away that long now, postnatal depression. I don't think so. I was left too long, Alan. Dear M, I hope you're well. I'm sorry for not writing sooner. I've been in bed since Monday and I'm still in bed. I did a little bit of background onto that and St. Patrick's Home in Cabra was a mother and baby home. So she's pregnant there and obviously it would appear they're not married. I'll probably be up again Sunday, so if you come in you'll be able to see me. Please excuse writing as I'm writing this in bed. All my love, A. Less than a month after that letter was written to him, 
M entered St. Brendan's Hospital. They were stripped of everything. You couldn't have questioned anything in those places. I really had nothing. The first night I went into my gym was a beautiful Aaron sweater was only knitted for me. And within two hours it was gone. I went over to the day room and I, it was on the chair and it was gone. So if clothes were brought into me, they were all old clothes. I never had anything good. They robbed them. Well, you have to sign all your... It's like going to prison. I mean, everything was... But I had nothing going in. I was given that cardigan and it was knitted especially by my Aunt Sarah and it was robbed within two. It was gone. It never, it never appeared again. Alan's exhibition was in what was called the Long Stores in Grange Gorman Hospital. In this room, people have asked where the little signs that are up here on the wall with numbers that say dressing gowns, knickers, socks. Is that part of my work? Did I put them up? But I didn't, obviously, because this was the Long Stores. Clothes were also to disperse from here, so that a, a person might walk down from a ward on nurse and say, I need 34 Y-fronts for Division X, um, or dressing gowns for Division Y, and so they'd be given them. So this room was probably stacked with shelving. Patients would come in here with their own clothes, and then those clothes would go down to the laundry, and then the, they would come back from the laundry, but they'd all be confused with other wards. And so the clothes that I get might necessarily be my own. It's another sign of kind of a depersonalising or, or erasure of an individual. And I do remember myself as a boy uh, walking around the grounds here, and seeing men with um, multicoloured socks not matching and trousers that were halfway up their shins and thinking that, you know, that that was a sign of their own, if you sensed, derangement or disassociation, but not at all. It's probably all that they had available to wear that day. And uh, it was kind of shocking to, to learn that. If you imagine your, it, it happening to yourself, it's extremely unsettling. Um, I can understand in some sense the rationale behind it, but I find the process unacceptable. People had no dignity. There's no doubt about it. You know, people were going around in the most appalling clothes. They're no clothes. I remember sort of saying to somebody, they were saying, oh, we have, we need to get more staff up here. And I remember saying, we don't need more staff. We need somebody who can actually sew. There are no buttons on any of the shorts or the trousers. And to hell with the nurses and anybody else. We need a seamstress in this ward. <laughs> and as it happens, there was a woman upstairs, a patient, and she, she did a lot of the sewing. I think we all tend to comply with institution practices very quickly. You become a patient. You become a condition, a schizophrenic, or whatever the label is, rather than a person. You lose your personal identity. And that's interesting, back to the art installation, part of that loss of personal identity is being stripped of your possessions. So, for instance, you would have communal institutional clothing. That's a very unusual practice. To have shared clothing as an adult is not a dignified thing. Brendan Kelly is a professor of psychiatry as well as an historian of Grange Gorman and other institutions. The taking away of belongings must be such a devastating blow, divesting people of their individuality. And this is part of the institution asserting its possession of the individual as they enter into it. And that's part of what institutions do. It's August 2015. Very soon, the new DIT University campus will be welcoming thousands of students into the former hospital. That is remarkable. It's almost difficult to tell where we are because they've changed the place so much. We're at the back of the old... Uh, this is an intensive care unit. And uh, there's the Roman Catholic Church. And there's your full shed DIT. Welcome to Grange Gorman. 
I don't think that's something the patients would have seen here 100 years ago. <laughs> there wouldn't have been welcome signs. Perhaps there were, but uh, I think it would have been sadder. The place just feels cheerful. It was a huge complex, huge. The old playing pitches used to be there, and I presume that, that before they were playing pitches, they were part of the farm. There was a village, or a small town. Here on site we had a, a farm... And you had a bakery here, you had a slaughterhouse here, you had boot and shoe repairs, you had mattress repairs, repairs of wheelchairs and repairs of every type of equipment you had it on site here. These institutions were not hidden. Great huge big institutions, often at the edge of the town, everyone knew they were there, thousands of people working in them, supplying them, fully integrated parts of the community... There's a beautiful card here, wishing you a very, very Merry Christmas. From A to M, wishing you a very happy Christmas. Lots of love. And there's a Valentine's card. And the Valentine's card has nothing inside it. It's very beautiful, but nobody's written to anybody. Maybe it was something that um, meant to send. It's like the human relationship is going to take place despite no matter what way you organise the environment to, to, to almost make it impossible. Things will happen. People will communicate. And, and there's no doubt about it. Humour was a big thing, you know. Though on the other hand, the danger about nostalgia is you can, you, I can remember about laughter and laughs and all that. But I have to sometimes remind myself that maybe for some of the people it wasn't all that funny. And maybe, you know, the laughter was tinged also with the knowledge. You see, I could go home in the evening. I had the choice. I had the freedom. They didn't. Father Pierce O'Doul, Capuchin chaplain to St. Brendan's Hospital for 40 years, knows as well as any what the difference between life inside and outside the walls of the hospital was like. I think that was the biggest tragedy about places like this. They weren't built for that. These uh, psychiatric hospitals were a throw-off from a long time before that. And they were put in to get them off their hands, if you like. There was no such thing as uh, psych- psychiatry. They were just thrown in to a big building. Horrible-looking places. But I can, uh, the, the, the part of it that really, really charms me is the fact that they were given so much time, they had so much time on their hands that they were able to forget about the outside world. It seems to have been an experience common to many of those who spent time in these institutions, whether as patients or as staff, that the organisational system and that the smooth running of that system were more important than the people it was designed to care for. The most important thing was the actual routine, which was getting up, breakfast, medication, and a kind of a lull after that usually. There might be a bit of bed making. You need to get out quickly or else you become institutionalised. I have uh, nursed patients who spent 40, 50, 60, some of them 70 years in these institutions. I can remember uh, nursing one patient who was admitted during the 1920s Everything was communal, you know, large dormitory, sleeping, bathing was even kind of, was kind of done en masse. Speed was of the essence, even though there was a full 12-hour day. I remember one particular 
room where we had baths for patients. So there was two baths side by side and there was two toilet bowls. So you'd often have patients sitting on the toilets using the toilet bowls and another patient in the bath. I'd be very uncomfortable using that myself and yet that became a norm. It somehow made sense because that's the way it was. I'm not saying that it was done in any cruel fashion or anything, but the structure as such was lack of individuality and lack of personality. There are very disturbing stories of, for example, dentures. So all the dentures would go into a uh, basin at the end of the day and the following day you'd pick a set of dentures out again. It mightn't be the same one, there could be different ones. And these are ways in which institutions can dehumanise in a very, very profound way. The institution is so big and the kitchens are so big, the system is so big, the washing, um, they can they can quickly, the system can depersonalise the person, they can take away the personal belongings, a certain amount of personal freedoms. So the last thing that's left is that one-on-one human relationship with the nurse who recognises the person, not the patient. I couldn't expect any hospital to equal the, 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 the way that the staff treated the patients. They were fantastic. They were just be, became like the patients themselves in a sense that they had such understanding. In that era, there was a lot of people ended up in hospital for the wrong reason. There was no earthly reason why. And reading files... You would see it, young women admitted because they were pregnant. And uh, that, was a, that was very tragic, very sad. But there's no point in blaming the hospital and the health board or whatever, the Dublin Health Authority at the time, or Grange Garman. It was the people, the people of Ireland were to blame for a lot of those people. It was the culture. I went away for a rest for six months and I came back at 26 and I came back ten years later. Three years in Brandon's, three years in Mount, and then John of God's before that. Nine years in the hospitals altogether and then six years in therapy, so 15 years around the psychiatric system. If you look closely at all of the belongings, they can tell you tales of loneliness, of really rich, full lives, and you wonder just at one particular point what happened that broke it. And then the more I've gone through the documents, um, you realise that some people came in here for the right reasons. Some people came in for, I suppose, that old world asylum. People came in, you'll find in the records, for two days. What was that about? Getting away from an abusive husband? Simple respite from troubles? A lot of the materials from the 1950s, and they were very, very, very hard times. And you wonder just, just what difficulties people were facing. In November, just before he voluntarily went into the hospital, this is the letter that M received from A. My dear M, this is just a few lines hoping you're well. Hope you got home safe. I was a little tired after the day. I got congratulations from everyone. Sister C was very disappointed she didn't see me before I went out. 
I want you to thank your sister for me for everything. In the course of some research in the General Register Office, I found a marriage certificate for M and A. They got married at the Church of Our Lady on the Navan Road in late October 1955. I have about one month to go until the baby is born, so my time is getting short. I will close now as I'm rushing to go to the Novena. So till Sunday then, M. All my love forever, A. Among the letters and cards belonging to M, there was a Baldoyle Parish Fund raffle ticket for the 22nd of October 1955. On the back of it, he had written his thoughts. Second week of October 1955 in Port Marnock. Be on the right, wise on your way. Be not as a dog and led that way. Wise men of the days of old cannot come back to tell their truth. And behold the day, you have one more chance. Can't take it. Fall never to be. M was discharged from St. Brendan's Hospital in December 1955, four weeks after his admission and close to the time their child was due to be born. He left all of his letters and documents behind him. Hopefully, his doubts and his troubles too. One can only hope that he and A found happiness together, some flicker of warmth in all this chill. Without a blood tie to their family, it is impossible to learn what became of them or their first child. And outside of the hospital records, the lives of others whose possessions came down from the attics remain insubstantial, haunting, belonging to no one. Some patients, long-term patients, did live to great ages in the asylum, you know. I mean, people lived into their 80s, you know, and 90s, you know. Division number. 7M. Register number. 67899. Died at? 10.40 o'clock a.m. On? 13th day of February, 1961. Removed to mortuary. Sometimes relatives, you you know, would come and claim the body, you know. If relatives weren't available uh, to take the body, the the hospital itself arranged for the burial, you know. And the hospital has a communal plot in Glasnevin. They wouldn't be marked graves, but actually one of the sad things about um, the committal forms is that if a patient who'd been in the institution for, for, for decades if they became dangerously ill, the hospital would write to their last known address to try and contact relatives, you know. And and, uh, often among the committal papers, you'll find an envelope uh, which had been sent to the last known address, maybe an address where they'd lived 40, 50 years before, and and there'd be a note on it, not known at this address, you know. And their relatives would be be long, long dead, you know. Very Uh, very, 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 Very sad indeed. But, but, you know, there would always be an attempt by, 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 by the hospital to try and contact relatives, you know. When I came here first, the hardest thing for me to do was a funeral because often there'd be nobody belonging to the patient, even though the place, the country would have been searched for relations and, or friends, people who knew them beforehand. And uh, very, very, very often the patient was alone the priest was alone too because the priest looked down into the grave said the prayers more or less spoke to the patient and to God nobody to answer the prayers you were left alone <laughs> the grave diggers went up behind the trees somewhere have their smoke and so on and so forth maybe looking down at the coffin 
and nobody to my left or to my right to uh, pray with me. That broke my heart. (laughs) Following a letter campaign by Father Pierce in the national newspapers, a rule was made that no funeral was to leave the hospital in Grange Gorman without a mourning coach of staff or of fellow patients. That is how the lives of many patients in this hospital ended. Their possessions are now stored in a small shed on the old hospital campus between a toilet and an ambulance dispatch office, which are scheduled for demolition. It is likely they will have to be moved again, restless as ghosts. In in the annex, this man, he was a carpenter, told me that he had seen a ghost in a um, a doorway leading into the room where the patient's private property was. Um, And apparently um, this ghost uh, had appeared only for for, for a a few seconds. He couldn't make out uh, her face. She had grey hair and she was wearing a polka dot dress. And she disappeared, you know, after a few seconds. But among... uh, uh, the the the, the uh, patient's belongings. We we did find a polka dot in our dress, which is. We're now in Glasnevin Cemetery, and somewhere among all these headstones, are, the bodies of the patients from Grange Gorman, and we hope to find them. Um, my name is Alan. I spoke to you on Friday. Yes. I'm the man doing the research on Grange Gorman. Oh. Lynn Brady, genealogist at the Glasnevin Trust, trawled through the cemetery's archive and was able to provide a number of burials of patients from the institution. Were they buried in a particular place? Not necessarily, no. They're actually buried all over the cemetery. As they they came in 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 pauper's graves? Yeah. Yeah. Between 1859 and 1928, the bodies of 2,491 patients unclaimed by family or relatives, were sent from the Richmond Asylum to Glasnevin Cemetery. Some of the graves are so ornate. When you're looking for an unmarked grave, you're just looking at an area of open ground in which somebody may lie, or probably does lie. Between 1928 and 1957, the bodies of 410 patients, unclaimed by family or relatives, were sent to Glasnevin Cemetery for burial. It does seem impossible that among all these headstones that there would be room for so many pauper's graves. That could be an unmarked grave. Any piece of ground that does not have a stone marker on it. The last burial at Glasnevin from the hospital was in the year 2000. Between 1957 and that year, the newly named St Brendan's Hospital sent 175 bodies for burial. That's a sum of 3,076 people in 140 years. 22 of those bodies, likely the most recent, are buried within a plot marked by a stone for St. Brendan's Hospital. All others are scattered in unmarked pauper's graves throughout the cemetery, as beyond reach now as they were during their lives. Glasnevin Cemetery. Grave. N17 South. Name. Anne B. Occupation. Servant. Address. Richmond Lunatic Asylum. Cause of death. Fatty heart. Age. 69. Date of funeral. So there's the number. See, 102. So you have to find out in which direction they go, and I think it's... Grave. 
JB 85.5 South. Name. Rosanna C. Occupation. Factory hand. Address. Grange Gorman Mental Hospital. And uh, you'd look for 100. Nothing on that one. And they're irregular, I think, in the way that they go across. 99. Name. Elizabeth C. Occupation. On that one. Housekeeper. Address. Grange Gorman Mental Hospital. Nothing on these. Age. 68. Date of funeral. Grave. DA 90 South. Name. Elizabeth Mary M. Occupation. Spinster. Address. St. Brendan's Hospital. Cause of death. Heart failure. Age. 65. Name. Eugene M. Occupation. Labourer. Address. St. Brendan's Hospital. Cause of death. Heart failure. Age. 27. Date of funeral. 2nd of February 1959.